This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1247 entitled There's a Film Over My Eyes. Our podcast title for today is Voyage to the Bottom of the Pod. As you may have gathered there from a bit of uh, John Williams' soundtrack there. I think it was John Williams. Yeah, yeah, maybe. For um, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. There's a reason why I played that at the top of the show. Sorry, actually, Jerry Goldsmith did that particular one, that theme in there. And that's because uh, David Hedison, who was one of the main characters in that old show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, has passed away. So a little bit of an oceanic tribute there. Now, I am Rob Jan, and I am Jan Solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is away. So you can strap yourself in to your flying submarine, because today I'm going to be talking about the Melbourne International Film Festival, amongst many other things. Well, not that many other, because it's just such a a massive undertaking that we will devote most of the show to it for today on Zero G. Now, I was uh, also saddened to hear of the passing of Rutger Hauer, the actor, and he actually did run into him once um, uh, at a film preview back in the day. Um, a very large chap, which reportedly cost him the um, the role for his uh, directorial partner, Paul Verhoeven, who's treated Rutger Hauer as something of a, uh, a muse for a while. Um, but he was going to have him uh, play Robocop, but realised that he would be a bit too large, maybe for the... Uh, to move around adequately in the in the complicated costume, the role eventually going to Peter Weller instead. All right, so I would um, like to do a little bit of a tribute to Rutger Olsen Hauer, Dutch actor and activist as well as some several other things, stage and screen were his main stays as well as a bit of um, voice acting too for various video games and so on Uh, but of very great relevance to Zero G in a genre sense. Now he was born in 1944 which means he was around during the occupation uh, by the Nazis in World War II and has only just passed away on the 19th aged 75 Now, one of his early entries into the genre was a historical television series called Floris, which was the name of the noble knight that he played in that series. It was actually directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, one of the early encounters that they had many, worked on many different projects over the years. One particular film that um, was very popular, Ladyhawk from the 1980s, where Rutger Howe played a, one of a pair of star-crossed lovers who were cursed to wear existences, as in werewolf, which is uh, 
what happened to Rutger Hauer's character in that. Um, what was he called? Sir Etienne, or Captain Etienne. He was a he was a wolf by night, and his lady love Michelle Pfeiffer was a hawk by day. Hence the title, Lady Hawk. Actually, quite a beloved film um, because of the uh, the courtly romance. Um, possibly the big horse, <laughs> very impressive war horse that he was riding. Um, and I kind of, I watched it at the time and I enjoyed it well enough. There was a lot of um, fun to be had out of that film. Um, possibly not the 1980s score, which was actually pretty awful, um, which is not always the case for 80s genre films. Some great scores come out of the 80s. Basil Polidorus's Conan the Barbarian and so on. Um, but I couldn't quite get past the um, the kind of anachronistic armour and the, uh, uh, the the double um, double crossbow and things like uh, the way he wielded his uh, two-handed broadsword like it was made of plastic, you know, <laughs> sort of stuff that, that just bugged me at the time. I think I was on a bit of a medievalist jag then, so I thought I knew it all. <laughs> but nevertheless, that, that film has endured the test of time and many people still remember it fondly. Now, as I said, uh, Rutger Hauer played uh, a night before in a, uh, a Verhoeven television series, um, Florist, which was... Fl- not Florist, Floris. <laughs> It was one of a, a number of similar popular medieval TV adventure series in the 1960s, um, like um, Terry La Fronde or The Adventures of Robin Hood or Ivanhoe and Sir Lancelot. Um, and uh, Rutger Hauer went on to reprise that role in the 1975 German remake of Floris as well as playing a mercenary in the medieval movie, Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood, which was a, a shocker, but a, but great fun too at the same time. Uh, and Rutger Hauer actually was a knight. He was um, benighted in uh, 2013 in the Order of the Netherlands Lion. So he actually was um, Sir Rutger Hauer, uh, which is kind of ironic because he was a, quite a pacifist um, uh, although he ended up in the merchant navy at one stage, um, uh, colour blindness um, meant that he couldn't become a captain. Uh, later, in, enlisted in the uh, the Netherlands, Netherlands army, where he was um, a combat medic. So eventually, his um, his views against uh, using deadly force f- forced him to go elsewhere and take up a a career in movies and television. Um, Of course, we know him from Batman Begins uh, and a whole bunch of movies that were kind of oscillated across the the border between B, C and Z grades. Um, The Hitcher, Blind Fury, which was kind of um, an American sort of... um, take on uh, Zatoichi, the blind swordsman. Um, Salute of the Jugger, which uh, the Australian preview I actually saw him at. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that's not the Joss Whedon series, but the failed movie that came before that um, uh, in 1992, where he played, um, I think it was Lothos, the vampire ruler. Um, But he had a lot to do with vampires, actually. Uh, Dracula 3, Legacy. He played the... um, the actual uh, title role, not Legacy, but Dracula. And uh, even in Dario Argento's uh, Van Helsing, he 
he was uh, Van Helsing in Dracula 3D, which is a curious little experiment of Argento's. Um, I think the last film I saw Rutger Hauer in was uh, Hobo with a Shotgun, which is a is a hoot and pretty much um, describes the plot. Um, there's a, a, another bunch of movies, uh, The Blood of Heroes, um, Bleeders, Flying Virus, Omega Doom. You can imagine what sort of these twilights of the career films were. But a, a pretty damn good television um, uh, series, uh, Fatherland, which was one of those counterfactuals of what if the Germans had won World War II. Uh, he was also in the Merlin um, television series in 1998. It was a telly movie, actually, that one. Uh, Smallville, the um, Superman, Superboy vehicle on television and Salem's Lot in 2004 not the uh, not the original um, one and of course also Sin City and he was even in that musical uh, comedy television series uh, Gallivant and for quite a few seasons actually or at least one season I think um, sixth season oh. <laughs> I'd have to look that one up he played the fairy king in uh, True Blood I think he was um Suki Stackhouse's uh, fairy grandfather in that one. Had a natty taste in uh, waistcoats in that, I seem to remember. And, of course, um, uh, he was the president of um, the Federation of Planets in um, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, even showed up in the Kylie Minogue video on a night like this. No, I'm not going to take the chance to play that. <laughs> Amongst so many other roles over time, so from 1944 to 2019. But as I mentioned uh, at the top, he was also um, uh, an activist, uh, Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace. Um, if you have a look, um, Google uh, Rutger Hauer and um, the Sea Shepherd, you'll find a small um, little film he did um, to um, publicise them. And whale awareness in general. And speaking of awareness, he also started the Starfish Foundation, which was an AIDS awareness group, uh, still running to this day, I think, as a, as a charity. So many good deeds, as befits a, a knight of um, the Order of the Lion. That's a, a good thing to uh, be known for. And of course, Blade Runner in 1982 with Ridley Scott. Um, also a knight now, actually, Sir Ridley Scott, uh, where he played the uh, android replicant Roy Batty and had this wonderful speech at the end where he's um, shutting down. They had a time-coded genetic lock on them so they couldn't uh, go too far rogue. Well, actually, they went pretty far rogue in it, but uh, this would eventually trip them up and um, would just knock him off at an appointed time. I'm not sure. Actually, I think they must, they must have known exactly when that was too. It must have been ter- terrible knowledge to carry around with themselves. Uh, Blade Runner, one of the great science fiction films of the 80s and indeed of um, all time and a pretty worthy uh, sequel they did to it eventually. Now... It's no real surprise to science fiction fans to say that um, Blade Runner was set in 2019 and that's when uh, the character of Roy Batty dies in the film and, of course, Rutger Hauer has now passed away in that very year. Um, I suppose that's an ironic thing when you think about it. 
but I do love the speech, his monologue, the um, the tears in the rain monologue on top of the, the Bradbury building in um, neo-noir future Los Angeles. It's raining. He's just saved the life of the man who's been gunning for him. Or is he a man? <laughs> uh, and um, just saves Harrison Ford's character's life. And he's sitting on the rooftop holding a dove in one hand, about to pass away when he comes up with this glorious little monologue, one of the best in the science fiction genre, which he actually contributed to because he thought um, it needed to be something more poetical. So here he is, Rutger Hauer in um, Blade Runner with that monologue. I think you can even hear the rain in this one too. can if I've done it right. (laughs) Hello, this is Bobcat Goldthwait, and you're listening to 3 Triple R FM Melbourne. Rutger Hauer's monologue from Blade Runner 1982. Now, last week we talked about a whole bunch of uh, trailers that had dropped at um, San Diego Comic Con, amongst which we never really got round to talking about the Cats trailer. (laughs) Now, this inspired an enormous internet pile-on, a five-minute hate or longer. I was quite baffled by it. I mean, okay, they've used some CGI to add fur to the characters and tails too. That's another tale that we'll talk about in a moment. But I can't understand the the hatred for it. I know it looked like, oh, you know, a bit transgenic, like you'd altered genetically cats and mixed them up with human being DNA, shades of Dark Angel. Maybe it's because of, you know, well, you know zero-G weirdness and it's like, I see six more impossible things before breakfast than that. So it doesn't actually look that startling to me. Certainly not as um, odd as the enlarged eyes on uh, Alita Battle Angel, which I actually got used to after the first five minutes on screen anyway. So I don't know. I hardly think it's as out of context as that. Um, I think I'm rather chuffed with the Cats trailer, at least to the extent of not joining in that five minute. Hate, but you know, everyone eats from their own feeding bowl, unless there's something tasty to nick from someone else's, of course. So, I guess there's that. Um, for myself, it seems pretty much in the spirit. <laughs> I almost did a suffering succotash, <laughs> it's pretty much in the spirit of the very many cats theatrical show productions, and obviously, it has more than nine lives over the year. Years, right down to the traditional experimental reach out to the avant garde, in this case, the CGI fur and expressive tails. Um, maybe there's some motion capture in there as well for animatronics, I don't know yet. But, you know, actually thinking about the technicalities of it, tails were always a disappointment and a hard ask for the stage cozies for heavy duty dancing in the Cats musical. But, you know, tails are actually hugely important for proper vocabulary to give you the expressiveness of the feline beasties well it looked like they've got casting to die for um you know there was like um sir ian mckellen james corbin corden um rebel wilson um yeah i just you know it was it idris elba i think um uh, as a very dangerous looking macavity napoleon of crime uh yeah, it does look a bit edgy, but I 
don't actually think I've ever seen a Cats production. Um, maybe at uh, local theatre group level, uh, that hasn't been edgy. Everyone's try- always trying to Im- improve upon it or or do something uh, do something different. And um, I think judging from the trailer, and really, it's just a trailer. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, how do you judge completely from that? It's almost like um, somebody's getting paid to troll it or something. Oh, I, I don't know. It just, I find it... Um, quite odd anyway oh and um, Dame Judy Dench gets a, a crack at a role in the production and, and that's actually got a, um, a bit of a history to it she was originally supposed to have been in the stage play in the musical the first time out and she'd actually been specifically specified <laughs> specifically specified as playing a particular role but she snapped an Achilles tendon before she could take it up and now here's a chance for it to uh, actually be in a Cats production, not playing the, the original role that she had, though, back then. So it looks to me like they've nailed the dancing looks by turns, razor crisp and languidly erotic, which is, you know, how the Cats aesthetic does actually roll in its um, odd hybrid way. It's like splice or... Uh, <laughs> Uh, or indeed Dark Angel or any of those other shows. Um, and and the songs are all fairly straight down the line with T.S. Eliot's poems, not just in the lyrics but also in the well-fitted Andrew Lloyd Webber arrangement. It's all become a bit of a clichéd trope now, but, you know, back in the day it wasn't. Um, and actually, thinking about it, building a, a robust dance musical out of old Possum's Book of practical cats was no mean feat especially while you were making sure you didn't weigh the whimsy down with too much additional superfluous messages as it is um, Lloyd Webber's the original first production director Trevor Nunn and the lyricist Richard Stilgo just basically intelligently expanded upon themes of ageing and inclusion versus exclusion already present in the poems and left it at that. I mean, it's not an examination of Thatcherism and Reaganomics played out against a backdrop of Cold War stress. It's about cats who live and play in an alley. And apparently um, T.S. Eliot's beloved second wife and literary executor, Valerie, came along to Lloyd Webber with additional poems and her approval in the early stage of Cat's development and any songs that are not in the original book are sensitively worked up from those and other Eliot poems. And in fact, Cats kept Faber and Faber Publishers afloat with royalties, giving it um, a big boost and also a a helping hand in sales of other T.S. Eliot works. And I reckon Eliot would have to have been okay with that, given that he was a Faber and Faber director for so long. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a go at the Picky Palace and I hope for a 3D version too. Maybe um, at Max, that would be shiny. (laughs) So I'm going to go back to the um, we'll go back to uh, the 80s actually here because I mentioned before um, Lady Hawk the soundtrack for that a very typical um, 80s electro soundtrack and this is the love theme from Motion Picture and um, this is by Ju Yun Park and Andrew Powell I believe and it's just the uh, the drippy love theme the star-crossed were creatures there which 
kind of fits in with um, the hybridization of cats, <laughs> come to think of it. Wow! Hey, Space Buddies! I'm Danny John Jules. I play the cat on Red Dwarf, and I gotta tell you that listening to Zero G is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs. Zero G, industrial strength sci-fi pum-pum on three triple R. Well, I don't have the thongs, but I've got the knee-length socks. It's still pretty cold out there. Actually, it's not that bad today. Rob Jan here with Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio, as Mr Cat just said there, and we just had the uh, love theme from Lady Hawk, Julian Park and Andrew Powell there from the 1980s. So, big decade for fantasy movies as they decided to mine that vein after the big hits of the science fiction genre in the 1970s going into the 80s as well all right so the melbourne international film festival 2019 is upon us the end of the week actually not the end of the week coming up right in the middle of it more or less (laughs) as it kicks off on the first of august runs till august the 18th now zero g has been picking over the genre giblets of myth for around a quarter of a century now and this pre-apocalyptic year is no exception yeah i can call it because on the galactic scale that zero g works on there's always somewhere that's ready to go full apocalypse now in the not too distant future so yeah so i've already put the zero g rough list for this year onto our facebook page um this is a that was a first pass draft so far with just basically a heads up on the titles without splitting them up into genres but um the films i try and pick out are all got something of the essential quality of otherness that's zero g's whimsical turf now there's a whole bunch of special events coming up right at the the top uh, there's an iron fists and kung fu kicks chapter with the 36 chamber of shaolin and the eight diagram pole fighter and i believe they're going to have some martial arts demos on the stage always great fun uh the two classic shaw brothers hong kong waxia adventures there which basically just means um, martial heroes waxia and they're also having once upon a time in hollywood the new quentin tarantino film which looks like it's going to be a big one in terms of um, historical weirdness. Always good for Zero-G. Uh, there's a, uh, a feature on the film music of Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, very important contributors in genre, especially post-apocalyptic. Uh, Nick Cave there with the um, music for The Road, amongst others. And the Planetarium Full Dome showcases down at the... Uh, Science um, works planetarium are always worth having a look at because they're usually just by definition got some science fiction content in them. Now, our co host Megan gave us a detailed lowdown on the Jeff Goldblum festival component of the myth last week, uh, so I won't really go over those again, just to mention the films are uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, Earth Girls Are Easy, Independence Day, Vibes, The Tall Guy. Thor Ragnarok and the Jeff Goldblum Fly. That's a Cronenberg um, directed one. Uh, there's also another film called The Mountain, which is not going to be shown at the Aster. The other ones are all in one enormous Goldblum night. <laughs> 
So that's something to look forward to as well at the MIF this year. Now, I think I will give you a track that I meant to play last week. It's um, um, the the uh, Grandmaster <laughs> Jam Session from um, Thor Ragnarok. And this is uh, from the original motion picture soundtrack album. And here we go with that. Hopefully, if I've got it queued up correctly this time, sometimes these things... Two strange and wonderful and magical evolutions before you press that techno-sorcery button. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yeah, yes, Jamie, that is a big one. What arcane sorcery is this that our co-host Megan McHugh is not here and yet she talks on air just then? Ah, amazing. I have to look into that technology someday. Now, back to the myth, and we just played a track from Thor Ragnarok, which is uh, one of the Jeff Goldblum featuring films at the uh, Goldblum Festival at the Astor during the MIF this year, the Melbourne International Film Festival. Our next item is an Australian film, which is by um, uh, Abe... Forsyth, director, uh, called Little Monsters. And it's actually got um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, who was in um, Jordan Peele's Us. And she is playing a teacher who's off to the Pleasant Valley farm. Got a whole bunch of five-year-olds in tow, a crocodile of five-year-olds, and uh, a few other people tagging along there for reasons that are not particularly good, but... When she gets to uh, Pleasant Valley Farm, there are difficulties because there's a military base next door which has inadvertently triggered a zombie outbreak. So this is a, a zom-com, possibly a, a zom-rom-com. There's a bit of romance in there. And this looks like a lot of fun. It's one of the uh, the major uh, opening pieces for the MIF this year, Little Monsters. And I dashed into the headliners program. And there's another zombie movie. <laughs> a zombie boomby. <laughs> I can't say that. Zombie film. That works better. Jim Jarmusch popping up this time with a zombie movie. Not too far from the vein of Zombieland, I would say. Uh, he's got Adam Driver, who he's worked with before, and Bill Murray, and many of his muses here. And Tilda Swinton playing a samurai sword-wielding Scott, as well as Tom Waits and Selena Gomez, Iggy Pop, the Raza, Danny Glover and Steve Buscemi. I can never pronounce Buscemi? Buscemi. Anyway, it's like spaghetti or spaghetti. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that one. Never did know that, even back in the day. And this is um, The Dead Don't Die, a much-anticipated zombie horror movie set in Centreville, USA. So it looks like they're going to work the tropes over there yet again. So many zombie movies. What would the myth be without zombie movies? There's a bunch of other films in the headliner section, um, Bakaru and The Nightingale, that I'd also like to check out if I get the chance. And as I said, I did list these on the uh, Zero-G Facebook page as just one ginormous list of 
Items of interest to genre buffs, whether you be science fiction, fantasy, horror, historical, or perhaps just a miscellaneously orientated person who just wants some films about otherness. There is a large section of Australian films as well as the other one that we mentioned just before, Little Monsters. Uh, particularly want to check out Judy and Punch and Below, amongst others. And I did mention before that um, at the top of the show that uh, David Hedison had also passed away. And it reminds me, when I'm talking about the um, the Jeff Goldblum film, The the Fly, that's the, the remake version, that um, David Hedison was the star of the original The Fly movie back in the, uh, the 1950s, 1958 to be precise, uh, where he played uh, a scientist who was experimenting with matter transportation. And it all went wrong. You know, that old lady who swallowed a fly? Well, that's what happens in that particular film. And um, at least a couple of sequels too. Vincent Price played uh, David Hedison's brother. Who was David Hedison? Well, Albert David Hedison Jr. was an American film, TV and stage actor. Also did some uh, theatre and... um, uh, and radio, uh, as I was saying earlier on, and he was known for The Enemy Below, a 1957 uh, World War II set submarine movie where he played with um, boats <laughs> in the water. Uh, Robert Mitchum was also in that film. Really good book too, but an excellent film. You can check that one out. And The Fly in 1958 with Vinnie Price played his brother and went off to England, did The Son of Robin Hood, where he played said son. Uh, also got a start in television on a detective show called Five Fingers where he changed his name from Albert to David Hedison. Um, that only lasted one season and then he went off to do Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, the Irwin Allen, Allen science fiction series set aboard a, a giant nuclear-powered submarine. He played Captain Lee Crane opposite Richard Basehart's Admiral Nelson from 1964 to 1968. And then he went off and did a television movie called Cat Creature in 1973. Now, he played CIA agent Felix Leiter, and although um, he didn't get fed to the sharks in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, quite, he um, did in Live and Let Die and Licence to Kill. I don't remember which one he um, got uh, fed to the sharks, but he survived it too, by the way, um, providing a revenge motivation for Timothy Dalton's James Bond to go on a wampage of revenge. David Hedison did a lot of 1980s television, a lot of guest appearances in different shows, and a a reasonably long stint on the 1990s soap opera, Another World. Passed away at home in Los Angeles. His wife, Bridget, had already died in 2006, I believe. She had cancer. Uh, Married her in 1968. Um... They had two daughters, uh, Serena and Alexandra. Both are in the film industry and TV. Um, Alexandra is actually married to Jodie Foster as well. So David Hedison, no longer with us, born in 1927, passed away in 2019. And here's Paul Sawtell's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea theme music. Jerry Goldsmith also worked on the incidental music for the Irwin Allen science fiction series back in the day. Hello, this is Paul McGann, the I am with Neil and I. L- listen to me, listen, listen to me. There are things in here. There's a tea bag growing. Well, 
Shucks, of course there is. Paul Sortel there with the voyage to the bottom of the sea. Overture will go with, actually, it's the main title theme from the television series. Now, back to the Melbourne International Film Festival. The international section also contains quite a few films that uh, tickle our very fancy nature here on Zero G. God Exists, Her Name is Petrunya. Uh, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead, which is another um, uh, Wheatley film, I think, as well. The guy who gave us some um, field in England. Uh, Particles, a science fiction film. Kursk, which is a historical one about um, the submarine, the Russian submarine. And uh, a whole bunch of others who I won't go into today, apart from First Love, which is the obligatory indispensable, essential Takashi Mikke film for this festival, First Love. It's uh, one of those hyper-insane Mikke films. This one's about uh, a boxer and a lady of the night who are trapped between the Yakuza and the triads and total chaos. That's <laughs> the sort of film that you know Takeshi Mike is going to excel at. You've seen his work before, thousands of times it seems before, in all sorts of different films. So, I also advise you to check out, along with First Love, The Mountain, which is a Jeff Goldblum movie, and also The Orphanage, nothing to do with um, Del Toro, and Ghost Town Anthology. And as well as the art of self-defense in the international section. Oh, and uh, some historical stuff on a musical note. Susie Q. There's a documentary about her work. Time in Lever Harness. <laughs> All right. Uh, there are a bunch of documentaries which we will be getting into as we go through the myth. Um, my particular ones uh, that I'm interested in, uh, Our Time Machine and Freakin Uncut, about William Freakin, great director, as well as Meeting Gorbachev and Watergate. All of these ones are historical, things that I'm quite interested in, as well as one I just want to take a punt on, Aqua, Aquarella, which is about water, a commodity without which we are all useless unless you happen to be W.C. Fields, and that joke is far past its use-by date. Um, Other documentaries abound, and again, we'll get into those uh, when we we do. There are some restorations, including Black Robe. Um, Nice to see that, getting the restoration treatment. And The Juniper Tree, which is a Bork movie, at least she stars in it, as well as there being a focus on the director Penelope Theris including her film Dudes and a whole bunch of short films too. Oh, they've also got a focus on uh, Peter Strickland's um, uh, movies as well, including the pseudo-horror movie Barbarian Sound Studio, which we reviewed at a, a past myth as well, I think back in the day. Now... There are a number of films that are usually confined to a category called Night Shift. (laughs) And those ones, those ones are always prime fodder for Zero G. And this year is absolutely no exception to that general rule. 
Now, we've seen quite a few of those. I've seen um, about uh, five of those, I think, from memory. So i just um, have a quick run through some of the ones that I've seen. I've seen Dark Place, which has got multiple directors, and it's produced by Marjorie Heath. And it's got um, five films in it. It's basically an Australian one. And they've given the uh, the five young directors a kind of a, a space where they can explore contemporary Indigenous ideas, as it says, via the expressive medium of fantasy and horror. And so, story one in Dark Place is Cody Bedford's movie Scout, uh, which is actually very confronting. Um, it starts out with free-chained Indigenous women being hired out to be tortured uh, and thereby hangs the tale of women's revenge against their oppressors. The second story, Liam Phillips' Foe, is about an insomniac who wakes up one day and finds that her feet are dirty and that she's got a bloodied knife in the sink. Story three, Rob Braslin's Veil Light, is an interesting little mood piece I found. Um, a young Indigenous woman has just moved into a new house. She's had bad experiences in rentals previously, but things seem like they might go a little better when she finds out that her new neighbour has some rather special skills. Perrin Bonser does the fourth story in Dark Place, The Shore, it's called. Uh, young woman is alone in the bush with her dad and something happens to him. I actually thought I just saw this film. <laughs> no, this is a short film. I oh, know, what was I thinking of? Um, Into the Forest on Netflix. Um, this is done in black and white. It's terribly Australian Gothic and it's not a terrible film. It just is very Australian Gothic and uh, it, very good use of um, the bush cabin location, I thought, here, which is gloriously filmed. Story number five is a zombie film, more or less. Uh, Bjorn Stewart's Killer Native, a colonial zombie story where uh, Tom and Sal, a young English couple, arrives on the scene back in the day and have a hell of a time. It's actually quite hilarious, this one, with ginormous amounts of gore. I know, you've got to have eclectic, eccentric, hysterical tastes. But uh, I find it quite, quite good. I'd like to actually see that that one um, expanded a bit. Bjorn Stewart's Killer Native. All five stories can be found in the Night Shift program in a film called Dark Place. Now, I um, thought that uh, several other films were worthy of mention. I saw a film called uh, Tito, T-I-T-O. Um, now, there's straight out art house fare. <laughs> uh, a young person... Well, actually, maybe not quite so, yeah. I'm um, no judge. <laughs> uh, has some very strange experiences when someone comes to stay at their house. And they've been having strange experiences before then, but before you could say the cable guy, the newcomer has settled into stay. A very, very odd film is Tito, I thought. Um, but I appreciated it. I'm actually up for experimental films at the MIF. I really want to be challenged and baffled and bemused sometimes and confounded, and I thought that Tito did that. It's actually a Canadian film, 
and it's by director Grace Glowicki. And this is actually um, a very surreal movie in itself. It's a, a cross-gender film, essentially, called Tito, T-I-T-O. And that's the name of the main character in this film. Um, very, very oddly pitched and filmed, but that's all right. That's what I was up for. Now, another one that also challenged me was Violence Voyager, directed by Ujicha, and it's a Japanese animated horror science fiction film. Young Bobby, an American exchange student, has moved to Japan um, and wants to climb over a mountain with their friend Akun to see another friend, Takashi, who has moved schools recently. The weird creature sketches in the opening credits do not bode well for this adventure. Now, the animation is actually what they call 2D animation. Um, essentially, uh, uh, they've, they've um, watercoloured in characters on backgrounds and they've cut out the characters and they just move them around by hand without actually allowing you to see the, uh, the animator's hand. So very, very basic rudimentary animation. But it actually kind of suits this film in the way that the basic animation of South Park suits their subject matter as well. Um, these children find an abandoned amusement park, which is not so abandoned because there is somebody on duty who has the prophetic words, I'm always here waiting for children to come and play. Yes, it's one of those movies and it's full-on body horror thereafter with some absolutely appalling ways of introducing... <laughs> various fluids into the story via squirting them out of the mouths of the uh, the cartoon two-dimensional sketch characters. Actually quite clever, clever that. Um, sick, but clever. And that's called Violence Voyager. Um, you're in for a hell of a ride with that one. Uh, another film which I watched in the night shift section is actually a documentary called You Don't Know Me. It's directed by American uh, documentarian Jeffrey McHale. Uh, and it's actually a, a, a revisitation of Paul Verhoeven's, speaking of um, Rick Howard's director, a uh, controversial movie, Showgirls. <laughs> so if you've ever seen that film, you're all, always going to be saying, what the hell is this about? Uh, and that's what the, uh, the documentarian takes up. Is it art? Is it effective satire? Is it just straight misogyny? Is it a send-up of American culture? And he goes into all of the various essays about this movie, which has become a bit of a, a cult movie with meta-generic characters. So that one is um, on at the Myth in the Night Shift section, which gen generally tends to uh, screen quite late. Or is that Scream? Uh, one which, um, again, I found quite chilling, Coco di Coco da. Well, now that's actually the um, the melody that's whistled and uh, sung in this movie, which comes from where does this one come from? Sweden, and it's the second feature film of Swedish artist uh, and animator, because there are some animated sequences in this. Johannes Niholm, and I think I saw their film The Giant at um, 2017. Myth. It's very fairy tale like, and basically a. Uh, a little girl dies of some unspecified ailment. It's possibly a food poisoning-related thing. 
and thereafter her surviving mother and father have an appallingly Groundhog Day-like adventure where they're trapped in a scenario that seems to spin off the decorations on the side of a music box. Um, it's actually quite scary, this one, and in a, in a, in a repetitive way that um, really chilled me. So it's called Coco D, Coco Da. I should have tracked down the music for that one because it's, it's quite a piece of work. Uh, also, there's Memory, The Origins of Alien, which is, um, I think it's, uh, it is, it is, it's a, um, a do- more documentary take on the anniversary of Ridley Scott's Alien. We are in the 40th anniversary, as we've mentioned on the show, and Alexandra O'Philippe has dissected this movie. He worked on the, um, the psycho shower scene dissection back in myth 2017 and he goes through all of the uh, the various permutations and combinations that brought the nightmares of dan o'bannon and um, also hr geiger and ridley scott amongst many other creative talents to the screen as alien back in 1979 and by god i was there for that one <laughs> all right now uh i did see several other films out of the uh, the myth, um, but um, time precludes me from talking about them today. So we'll get onto it next week as well. Once we're into the festival, so all of those films there, I thought were well watchable. And remember, our our, um, our parameter when we're going to the film festival is to be challenged and to see things that are other than we might normally see. So there you go. All right, that's it for Zero G today. And we've got uh, Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Now, one thing I should mention before I go, which will spin out into the final track of the show, is the Accelerator Lab public events at the MIF. One of them is going to be David Bowie, iconoclastic genius. Other ones are going to be Jordan Peele's Get Out. They're going to deconstruct that story and also look at production and costume design, amongst other things. But the David Bowie iconoclastic genius is right where Zero-G lives, and so we are going to go out today. Since we talked about um, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, uh, which is in the Jeff Goldblum little mini film festival, we'll go out with uh, Sir George's Starman rendition, which is um, a riff, a cover, a hatch cover of the famous Bowie soundtrack. And that's about it for Zero G today. Thanks to the many people who are helping me out at the MIF. And we'll be back to you next week with more. Thanks a lot. Rob Jan, over and out from Zero G. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.